Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Mark 10, chapter, no, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we give you thanks and praise, indeed. We're grateful for all you've given. We pray that you would Convict us of the ways in which we have chosen not to give in return. Pray that you would help us to hear this word this morning well so that we can be about your work in this world. Pray that you would comfort us where we need comfort. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, uh, if you tuned in or you were here, uh, you might recall that we, um, we, we sang the classic hymn, Jesus Loves Me. And I told the story that I tell just about every time we sing that song uh, about uh, the, the great Swiss theologian, Karl Barth, who was on a tour of the U.S. giving a talking tour and a smarty pants student stood up at one of these lectures and asked him to define his whole theology in one sentence. And uh, Barth said, Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
And, and I really love that story. That's why I tell it so often, I suppose. I, I love the simplicity of it. You know, Bart wrote these huge uh, amounts of, of theology. I have a shelf and a half of theology books, uh, just of Karl Barth's writings in my office. Uh, and, and yet he chooses at, in the end to rest in this simple fact of the love of his Savior. Right? Bart knew all kinds of fancy theological words. He, uh, you know, he could have thrown around eschatology or teleology or soteriology or uh, you know, ontological. And he probably could have used them in a sentence uh, that would have impressed this young student. And instead, what matters is Jesus' love, that everything else is details. And I love the truth of that. Now, what matters ultimately is not what we do or think, though that does matter, but what matters ultimately is what God does and thinks of us. You know, our truest, most human way of being in the world is living in and out of the fact that whatever we do or whatever we don't do, we are loved profoundly, completely, eternally loved. It changes everything. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's marvelous. Only this week, <laughs> in our lectionary reading, uh, St. Mark has chosen to complicate this for us a little bit. You see, uh, this story from St. Mark's Gospel is the only time in the whole Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, uh, where Jesus is said to love anyone explicitly. This is the only time that it says that Jesus loves someone. We might infer Jesus' love elsewhere, you know, that we can assume that he healed out of love, that he uh, fed the crowds out of love, that he told his disciples to be loving because he himself was loving. But this is the only place where we hear without uh, qualification and no uncertain terms that Jesus loved somebody. And I have to say, <laughs> it doesn't go quite like I expected to. Now this guy runs up to Jesus. Uh, he's sort of breathlessly wanting to know what he needs to do to secure himself a place in God's presence when it's all said and done. Now he's urgent to know this, right? He, this isn't like other times when people ask Jesus a question like this, where it's sort of a test to see if Jesus knows the Bible well enough. Uh, this guy is desperate for Jesus' answer. He believes that Jesus has an answer and he wants it. And so he runs to him, he falls on the ground, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And before we go any further into the story, I want to remind us or, or, or let us know uh, that, that just before this passage is what we read last week, uh, this scene where Jesus reminds his disciples, he just finished saying that the way to inherit the kingdom of God, the only way to inherit the kingdom of God, and kingdom of God here is kind of interchangeable with eternal life. Both have to do with, with what God is up to in and around us here and now and forever. Right? And Jesus says that the only way to get in on that is to receive it like a little child. The kingdom of God is received, not achieved. But this guy's out to achieve something. Right? He, he wants to know what he needs to do to get in on what God's doing. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I always imagine Jesus kind of sighing and rolling his eyes. This might say more about me than about Jesus. But Jesus says, you know, uh, if you want to do something, go follow the commands, right? That'll get you well on your way. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Respect your folks. Um, and that should keep you busy. 
But this guy is, is, is not interested in busy work. This is a serious guy. He is well-trained in the art of achieving. Uh, he's rich. He's got social standing. He's a religious wonderkind. He says, I, I've fallen all of the rules uh, to a T, to a fault, even when I was a teenager. And who among us can say that? And still, something is off. Something's still missing. And I think it's this that in all of his breathless achieving, his desperate calculating how to get in on God's good side, he missed out on the thing that he's actually desperately trying to get, which is God's actual presence, God's love, God's life-giving intimacy. And despite all that he's accomplished, this guy is still yearning for what he calls eternal life, yearning to be with God now and forever, which I think is the yearning in every heart, in every soul. Uh, it's what we're made for. Now, St. Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We can't truly relax into the life we're meant to live until we're living and moving and having our being in the ceaseless and extravagant love of God. And that's not something we achieve. How could we achieve that? How could we make the God of the universe? What could we offer to make the God of the universe love us? We can't. We just have to receive it. Which is, I think, beautiful, but it's, it's also really hard, isn't it? <laughs> now, we're not used to such astonishing grace. We want to do something. We want to earn our place, right? It's hard to fathom that the God of the universe just loves us, just because. That the one who made the heavens and the earth delights in us. The one who made the heavens and the earth delights in you. Before we manage to do anything, before we get out of bed in the morning, and whether we manage to do anything, God delights in you. Now you can hear how hard it is to understand this, how hard it is to wrap our, this reality in our minds in the man's voice. He says, you know, I followed all of the rules since I was in my youth, and I wouldn't be here if that got me what I want. And Jesus looked at him, Mark says, and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. When he's at the end of his rope, when he he's got, doesn't know what to do, when all of his calculating hasn't added up, he's finally in a position to receive the thing that he wants so desperately, which apparently lasts for about 10 seconds. Because Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, you lack one thing. <laughs> you have too much stuff. <laughs> I, I, I love that so much. It reminds us that God's metrics uh, are, are not ours, right? You lack one thing. You have too much stuff. Go sell everything. Give the money to the poor, and then let's go for a walk together. Let's uh, come follow me. And the man is shocked. And maybe a better translation is that he is appalled. He is shocked and appalled that Jesus would say something like this. He has spent his life establishing himself, and uh, now Jesus just wants him to give all that up. Now, in a culture that's not unlike our own, where riches were assumed to be kind of a sign of blessing, Jesus just wants him to sell everything and join the ranks of the poor. And instead, he goes away grieving because, and Mark is clear about this, he has a lot of stuff, many possessions. And so I wonder, as people who have a lot of stuff, <laughs> what do we do with a story like this? You know, throughout the history of the church, it's been interpreted in different ways. 
Now, some have assumed that this is actually kind of a literal call for all Christians. Uh, the Feast of St. Francis was on Monday, and the reason St. Francis is such a, a compelling character is his kind of unflinching commitment to downward mobility, <laughs> right? He was born into wealth. Wealth seemed to look good on him. He did it well uh, until he encountered a beggar and a call from God that compelled him to give it all up, and he did. Right? He gave up everything for the presence of God and the company of the poor. And I, there's something to me anyways that I, I just find that kind of wholehearted commitment really beautiful and challenging. Another way, uh, perhaps a more popular way, <laughs> predictably, is to, under, is to assume that this is kind of a, a metaphor uh, for a call to give up whatever it is that keeps us from living in and for the love of God. You know, we, we all have to cast aside our idols. That's kind of Christian, Christianity 101, right? And an idol is just anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God or that we put ahead or count as more important than God's will and way in the world. And for that guy, we guess it's wealth. Jesus sees into his heart, he's got a problem with wealth. For you and me, it might be something else. You know, plus poverty is not in, in and of itself a virtue any more than riches are a sign of blessing. Money is not invariably bad. Money may not make us happy or holy, but I think we'd all like to find that out for ourselves if we can. You know, I, I think it's uh, I think it's somewhere in the middle. This story, you know, between a metaphor about uh, about uh, idols in general and and actually an uncomfortable call to consider how we are with our stuff, our possessions, our money. Now, on the one hand, as far as idols go, uh, money is a fairly low-hanging fruit for Jesus to pick. Uh, money is a seductive idol because it gives us the impression that uh, we've got things all together that we can fend for ourselves, then usually that we've earned what we've got or that we've got what we deserve in some way. Now, when those things are true, it's easy to set God on a shelf for special occasions or to wear God as a kind of uh, uh, spiritual embellishment on the rest of our lives. But there's lots of things that can be idols, right? We can make our families into idols. We make idols out of work. We make idols out of pleasure. We make idols out of good behavior. We make idols out of politics. I have known people to make an idol out of poverty, right? When it's not about emptying our hands to receive the kingdom, but about showing how virtuous and committed we are, giving up stuff is not really any better than hoarding it. And not having money does not save a person from being, giving themselves over to something less than God. And every one of us has stuff in our lives that vies for our attention with God that buys for our affection, that buys for our commitment. The fact is, we humans are incorrigible idol makers. <laughs> so I think the story does call us to reflect on the things that, that distract and dissuade us from living in the will and way of Jesus with everything we've got. We've all got things that we want to cling to so tightly that it's hard, if not impossible, to open our hands to what God wants for us for that reality that, that our hearts most desperately want, the presence of God here and now and the world as it will be when God gets the world God wants. That's more than all the riches there are. Nothing will compare. And discipleship to Jesus is at least in part uh, learning to let go of what gets in our way of what God wants for us. Sell everything and come follow me is kind of Kind of an abiding metaphor for Christian life. 
On the other hand, I think that the rest of the story makes pretty clear that this is actually and literally about money and our relationship to it. Now, the reality is that the only thing that Jesus talks about more than money is the kingdom of God. Jesus spends way more time talking about money than about any of the other things that we think of as really important to Christian life. And if you, fa- and if you factor in all of the stuff that the prophets have to say about money, it becomes pretty clear that God takes this seriously. How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. His word is not mine. That's a pretty nasty thing to say to folks like us, isn't it? I mean, the poorest among us are still among the richest in the world. I I, I read something a while back that said, if you have spare change, you know, the bowl or the dish or the, you know, the drawer that holds all the nickels and dimes and loonies we don't want to carry around. If you have one of those, and I do, then you are among then you are richer than 85% of the world's population, right? If we have money that we don't have to spend in order to survive, that makes us richer than vastly, the vast majority of the world's population. So it doesn't really matter whether we have lots or a little compared to one another. This, uh, This teaching matters for us. How we are with our money matters cosmically, apparently. You know, it may be that the rich can launch themselves into space, but they might miss the kingdom of heaven on the way past. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I think it's hard to be a Christian with a credit card. I have one, but I think it's hard to be a Christian with a credit card. It's hard to receive grace when it feels like we can take care of everything ourselves. It's hard to allow that God might want something other than what we want when what we want is so darn attractive, isn't it? It's hard to pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. When we got a storehouse of bread and never need to worry about where the next meal is coming from. It's hard to walk the narrow road of Jesus when we can afford to buy ourselves a more comfortable seat on a more convenient mode of transportation. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for rich folks to get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Poof. And I, I, I'm kind of with the disciples here. <laughs> and they can't really believe what their rabbi is saying, right? They, this time they seem to really think he's gone off the deep end. They, you know, who then can be saved? <laughs> right? I mean, if the folks who look like they have it all together actually don't. If the folks who can have whatever they want whenever they want it are the ones most in danger of losing everything, then what hope is there for anyone? And then mercifully, just when it just when it seems like all hope might be lost, Jesus reminds us that we're in the company of the God who does more than we can ask or imagine. That we are called into cahoots with the God who can lead a camel through the eye of the needle, like we might walk a dog through a park. For this God, all things are possible. This is the God whose grace knocks down the stuff that divides us. The God whose fiery love will melt down our idols and make something more beautiful. This God will take our gifts, our talents, our accomplishments, our money, and transform them from a means of self-protection and self-assuredness and self-obsession into the stuff that blesses the world. I mean, I think the fact is that we can easily be seduced into believing that greed is good and reasonable, that self-sufficiency is an ultimate goal to be chased after, that we can protect ourselves from hurt and harm by clinging to our idols. But Jesus says that greed is not good and reasonable, it's shallow and useless. 
Self-giving love is what changes the world. Jesus had everything, St. Paul says, <laughs> and he gave it all up for love's sake. And we got back more than we can ask or imagine. Jesus says self-sufficiency is not an ultimate goal. It's a fool's errand because we're not made that way. It's foolish to think we can be self-sufficient because we're made for intimacy. We're made for intimacy with God, with each other, with creation. Jesus is clear, what I think we all know deep down, that we can't protect ourselves from all hurt and harm by clinging to our idols. Our hope is built on nothing less than the promise that in Christ, God only has destroyed what would destroy us. That sin and death will not get the last word, but love and life will sing forever. Jesus promises us this stuff. And he calls us to sell out for it. Now, not as an obligation, but as an invitation. I don't know if you notice how quickly Peter jumps in and tries to remind Jesus of how much he and the other disciples have given up just to follow Jesus. And Jesus is pretty clear right away that they haven't given up anything compared to what they are going to get. And I think that the tail end of this teaching tells us that uh, return on investment in the kingdom of God is a hundredfold. I don't know a lot about investing, but I'm pretty sure that's a good return. And it's not a someday thing, right? This is the kicker. It starts right now. In this age and in the age to come, Jesus said, when we commit ourselves, our lives, our stuff to the stuff of the kingdom of God, to the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and gentleness and self-control, when we commit ourselves and our stuff to that, it compounds in ways beyond our imagining. That's the promise. So I got to wonder, what would happen if instead of buying one more thing we don't need, or instead of fretting over uh, what we'll do if somehow the money runs out, if instead we invested in planting the fruit of the Spirit in our neighborhoods, in our communities? What if more and more, and I know we have many generous people in the congregation, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but what if we more and more dug in deeper? Jesus always calls us deeper. More and more, if we didn't think of our stuff as ours, but as God's, which is properly is, we are stewarding this stuff. What if we let everything we are get caught up in what God is doing? What if everything we have is designed to help with the renewal of all things? Now, St. Paul has this this, uh, this great line in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, we are God's handiwork created uh, for good works. And that word handiwork is the Greek word poema from which we get poem. And so I like to translate that line as we are the poetry of God. And what if we let all of our stuff, what if we let God use all of us, everything we've got to write the poetry of heaven? Right? What if we let God write the poetry of heaven with all our earthly stuff? I think it would be breathtaking. I think we get back way more than we could ever possibly give because that's just kind of how God is. And it may put us at odds with the spirit of this age. You know, Jesus slips in right at the end that we're going to get some persecutions along with this. <laughs> this. This may not be easy. Life with Jesus and in his name is not always easy, but it is extravagantly good now and forever. So in the name of Jesus, who became poor for us, who gave everything for us, may it be so.